your great name. Amen. On June 26, 1976, an Air France flight from Israel to Paris was hijacked by four terrorists who redirected the flight to Uganda. I have a, a picture of an Air uh, France jet here, an old photo here, kind of grainy. That's what was hijacked. And once they got that jet to Uganda, the terrorists demanded $5 million and the release of 53 terrorists, most of whom were imprisoned in Israel. If the terrorists' demands were not met, the terrorists promised to begin executing their 106 hostages within a few days, and the eventual, de uh, the eventual deadline was July 4th. Since all but a handful of those hostages were Jewish, Israel was stuck in between a rock and a hard place. You see, they knew that this terrorist group was willing to kill their, their captives, which were Israeli citizens for the most part. They'd seen that happen before. But then on the other hand, their national policy was to not negotiate with terrorists. And arguably, that would make them an, an even greater terrorist target in the future than they were already, if they would play along, if they would give in to the demands. And so there was a fierce debate among the Israeli leaders. You know, should we, should we give in and negotiate? Should we stick with our policy? And in the midst of those discussions, Operation Thunderbolt was born. Operation Thunderbolt was a, a plan to send a stealth team of elite soldiers under the cover of night to try and take out the terrorists and save all the hostages. I have a, a photo here of the core group that made up that team of soldiers, and they did end up attacking. But the, the daring plan, it did not go without complication. You can get online and, and read the details if you're interested. But early in the morning of July 4th, the last day of the deadline, these soldiers, they attacked and killed all of the terrorists, and they saved 102 of the captives, only losing three hostages during the battle to free them. The rescue mission, it was viewed as an overwhelming success by the nation of Israel. They viewed it as a war over terrorism. And around the world, people admired the boldness and courage of the Israelis to stand up to their enemies instead of negotiating with them. Israeli's prime minister declared at the time that the mission would become a legend. He says, this mission, it's going to become a legend. And it has in the minds of many. And the reason I share that with you is because this daring Jewish rescue mission in 1976, it's similar in many ways to the bold rescue mission that Abraham, the father of the Jews, makes in today's passage. And so what we're going to do to work through our section is to break it into three main points. We're going to look at the recap of Genesis, the reconquest of Sodom, and the rescue mission of Abram. If you're taking notes, it's the recap of Genesis, the reconquest of Sodom, and the rescue mission of Abram. For our first main point, the recap of Genesis, I'm going to re-preach the first 21 messages of our series so far to kind of catch you all up to speed. <laughs> Just kidding, I'm not going to do that. I'll do it on three times speed maybe. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. We've covered a lot of ground so far, but I do want us to to remember some of the high points of where we've been. And the reason is because we want to study God's word in context. The Bible is a big book, and you can make it say virtually anything you want if you don't study it in context. And so since we've been out of it for the last eight weeks finishing the book of Luke, let's look at the high points together. In Genesis 1 through 2, God created the universe. He created everything in it simply by speaking. And he created human beings to, to rule over his creation and enjoy a relationship with him. 
In Genesis 3, we see the fall of humanity into sin, where Adam and Eve, they believe Satan's lie, that their existence would be better if they got to decide right and wrong for themselves, if they could function as their own gods. And they then gave up their dependent and loving relationship with God in the process. In Genesis 4 through 5, we see the horrific effects of the fall as Cain murders his brother. We, we see the, the sin of, Lamech's, uh, of Lamech, who's in the line of, of Cain. But we also see some hope in the godly line of Seth, which ends with Noah, who becomes the final righteous man in his whole generation. Now, the world had become so rebellious and perverse and violent that God in Genesis 6 through 9 wipes out the entire wicked human race with the flood. And only Noah and his family are saved in the ark. After disembarking from the ark, God blesses them and he gives them the creation mandate again to, to multiply and fill the whole earth for his glory. And we see that that happened and how it happened in chapter 10 and 11 with the table of the nations and with the tower of Babel. And at the end of chapter 11, the book of Genesis, it shifts. Up until that point, there's 11 chapters that cover over 2,000 years of history. So things are just flying by. But then from chapter 11 through the end of the book in chapter 15, everything slows down to just one family. It looks at three generations of Abraham's family. And so if you're familiar with Des Moines, it's kind of like driving on the interstate and then getting off in Windsor Heights and having to drive like 25 miles an hour. It's like every, everything slows way down. Now, part of the reason for that is that Genesis was written to the Jews by Moses after God brought them out of Egypt and before they entered the promised land. So while they're in the wilderness, and one of the main purposes of it was to document for the Jews that the God who had saved them from slavery in Egypt was the God of heaven and earth, the one true God who created everything and was worthy of their worship. And the same function is true for us today as believers, the God who has saved us, Jesus Christ who has saved us. He's the one true God who's worthy of all of our worship. Chapter 12, it begins with the epic call of Abraham by God to leave his idol-worshiping family to follow him. The Lord told Abram in, in verses one through three, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is one of the most important sections in Genesis and even in all of the scriptures. And there's three core promises in here that come up again and again in Genesis and throughout the rest of scriptures. And that is a land. God promises Abraham a land. He promises him an offspring, even though at the time Abraham is old, he and his wife, they don't have children and his wife is barren. He says, I'm gonna give you offspring. And then the third blessing is that, or the third promise, I'm sorry, is that he's going to be a blessing to all of the nations. That all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed through Abram. These incredible promises are described in Galatians 3 as the gospel. They're the gospel in seed form, in its simplest form, because the blessings of all the nations would ultimately come through Abraham's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham's remarkable faith in God, his willingness to leave his family, leave everything behind to follow God based simply on the word of God. It's been an example for believers since then throughout the ages of leaving our old life behind and being willing to follow God wherever he leads us. However, after God calls Abraham and promises to bless him, 
there are three straight threats to that promise that are presented. First, there's a, there's a famine in the land that God had, had promised to give Abraham. And so without consulting God, Abraham, he flees to Egypt where he asks Sarah, his beautiful wife, to say that she was his sister. Now he did that because he was afraid an Egyptian would kill him as a way to steal his wife. Abraham's cowardice put Sarah in harm's way as she was taken into Pharaoh's harem. And the promised blessing to, you know, for the whole nation through Abram and Sarah, that, that would have all failed right then if God had not intervened to deliver Sarah. So God has to, to supernaturally intervene to deliver Sarah. And then in chapter 13, what we see after that account is that Abraham repents. So Abraham repents after his failure, after his sin, and he returned to worship God in the land of Canaan. Back in the land, though, that God had promised, the promise is threatened yet again, and this time it's because of conflict between Lot and Abraham's herdsmen. So because they had both grown so much, there wasn't enough room in the land for both of them. And so rather than handling this situation out of fear and selfishness again, Abraham, he gave up his right as the older head of the family to choose his own land, and instead he let Lot pick where he wanted to settle. Lot chose the, the lush and best pasture land near Sodom, and he sent up, set up his tent outside of the city. But God, he blessed Abram's generosity by reaffirming his promise to make Abraham into a great nation and to give him many descendants. That's where chapter 13 ends. And all of that brings us up to speed for today's passage. And for our second main point, which happened many, many years after Abram and Lot separated. Our second main point is the reconquest of Sodom. The reconquest of Sodom. And it was actually the region around Sodom, but Sodom it plays the most prominent role in this account. Now, in, in our passage, one thing that's interesting to me is that we're introduced to the first military war recorded in the Bible. There's going to be many, many more, but this is the first one that is recorded. And Moses gives us a lot of detail that can easily go over our heads because of the many unfamiliar names and locations that are listed. This war is sometimes referred to as the War of Nine Kings, and we're introduced to all nine kings in verses 1 through 2. The first four kings, I have a, a list of their names here, so I don't have to say them all. But the, the four kings here, they were regional powers from the west and the north of Canaan. So that would be modern-day Iraq and Iran and Turkey. And these represented some of the strongest nations of the ancient world. This alliance, it was led by Kedorlaomer of Elam there, the third, the third name in the list. He's the, the one who was the most powerful of this group. The next five kings, they were part of a pentopolis or a five-city alliance where each king had its, or I'm sorry, where each city had its own king. But their kingdom, what you have to understand is that their kingdom was significantly smaller in size and in strength than that of the invading kings. And I have a, a map here. You won't be able to see the details probably, but the, the brown area or orangish area, that represents approximately the land under the power of the four kings. Now compare that to the little purple area around the Dead Sea there. You see how small that is? That's the five kings area. So that's the disparity between the, the influence and scope of their kingdoms. Now, the, after listing these, these nine kings and their two alliances, 
What Moses does is he explains the reason that these groups are lined up for war in the first place. The five eastern kings have been ruled uh, by Kedorlaomer for 12 years as vassal kings, which means that their power was granted only because they swore allegiance to and paid financial tribute to the mighty king of Elam. Now, in the 13th year, these five kings rebelled. They said that they had had enough. They didn't want to submit any longer, and so they probably stopped paying tribute. They said, We're, we are going to rule independently. We're going to be the highest authority in our region. Well, as you can imagine, this did not go over well with the big cheddar. That's what I think of whenever I hear Cheddar Laymore's name. <laughs> so he did not like this. He did not like this. And he didn't want to lose his wealth. He didn't want to lose his influence or power in that region. And so therefore, even though it took him a year to summon his allies and plan for the long journey uh, to the Dead Sea, by the following year, in the 14th year, he arrived ready to reconquest the land. He was ready to take it back over and subdue the five rebellious kings. In verses 5 through 7, we're given the path of destruction that followed the four invading kings as they made their way toward the Dead Sea. And I have a map here that's kind of like an eye chart. You're not going to be able to see the details. But what I want you to understand is from the top right corner, we see a line going down. And it comes down south, and then it loops back up towards the Dead Sea. That's the strategic route that these four kings took. The first city that they conquered, that they came to, was one of the mighty Rephaim people who are described later in Deuteronomy 2 as being home of the famous and intimidating giants. So this first victory, it would have sent quite a message because the four kings conquered the most physically imposing army in the region. Next, they appear to effortlessly have swept down south, defeating all the prominent cities along the way, defeating the Zuzim, Emim, Horites, before looping back to defeat the Amalekites as well. So by taking this route, what they did is they wiped out any potential alliances with other, other forces in the region, and they also secured the best trading route to Egypt, which would have increased their influence in the region. And then they essentially cornered the five rebel kings if the, if the battle took place south of the Dead Sea, as most scholars believe. So some think it happened to the north. We don't know for sure where the Valley of Siddim is. I picked this map, even though it has it on the north, just because it shows the path very clearly. But most believe that they cornered these kings, and the whole path shows that this was a well-thought-through attack. They, they thought through exactly what they were trying to do, these four invading kings. In verses 8 through 9, we see the four kings line up against the five kings. The battle line is finally drawn, and they're about to clash. And we read about the clash in verses 10 through 12, but in many ways, it's very anticlimactic. All these verses, the first nine, setting up the battle. And then it says this. Now, the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. The way the battle is described, it sounds like it was over before it even began. It doesn't even say that these five kings fought. <laughs> so the first thing it mentions is them running away. It mentions that they're fleeing. Now, in their panic, they were so desperate to get away, these soldiers of the, the five kings. As they were running away, trying to get, escape the sword, a lot of them met an awful fate, a different fate of falling into asphalt pits or tar pits. These are uh, historically common around the Dead Sea. And I have uh, a picture here 
Now, this is not a person who's fallen in. It's a little bit hard to see, but that is a dog. There's actually two dogs that have fallen into a tar pit here. And I know this is blurry, but here's the next picture of a dog that has been pulled out. You see how thick and awful that is? It's like tar. It's like pitch getting put onto you. And you might wonder, why would anyone run into a tar pit? Like, that seems like a bad strategy for escaping, you know, an army. But what would happen is they're so sticky that sand would come and it would blow over it. Debris would come over it and stick on the top. And so often people wouldn't even know it. So if you're running full speed, by the time you figure out what you're in, it's too late and you can't escape. And so Moses records this, how, how decisive the victory was for the four invading kings. The, the conquest, the reconquering of the lands. Again, we're supposed to see how simple this was. And they ended up taking all the possessions and food that they wanted as plunder and began their long journey back home. Now, this is not the first war or battle in human history. So a question for you to think about is, why does Moses give us so much detail about it? Why does he explain so much about what happened here? Well, verse 12 gives us the primary reason. It says that they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. If Kedolaimor, if he had not taken Lot, this war probably would have never been mentioned in Scripture. But Abram's nephew and his family, they were part of the spoils of war. It's ironic to me that, that Lot, he had moved to that area. He moved outside of the city eventually, and this verse, verse 12, says that he eventually moved into Sodom. He moved into the city. He'd moved there just out of a desire for, for wealth, out of a desire to better his family financially. And ironically, that decision made not factoring in the spiritual consequences of, of living in Sodom, it ended up leading here to him losing all of his possessions. All that he had is now confiscated from him. And in verse 12, what's happening is Lot and his family, they're beginning the thousand-plus-mile march back to the kingdom of Elam, where they're probably going to be sold as slaves for the rest of their life. This is why the, the Battle of Nine Kings is recorded, because Lot is taken captive. Now, the extra details that Moses gives are also to help us see that King Chedorlaomer and his alliance of kings were a skilled and dominant military force. That's important to notice. This was not a hastily assembled volunteer army. This was not a JV squad This is one of the most impressive armies of the ancient world. They were good, and they knew that they were good. This is what Moses wants us to understand about the four-king army because it gives important context to our third main point, which is the rescue mission of Abram. Listen to verse 13. One of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. What we see in verse 13 is Abram is well established now in the land of Canaan. He's formed an alliance with an influential Amorite family. And Abraham lived around 20 miles or so from the probable location of the Valley of Siddim. And so hours after the battle ended, probably late that night, a survivor makes his way to Abram's camp. And when he does, he told him that Lot had been taken captive by the alliance of four kings. What would you do if you're Abraham? What would you do in that situation? I'm sure that Abram was heartbroken by the news about his nephew. But I think he easily could have consoled himself with the fact that Lot had chosen not just to live near Sodom, but in Sodom. 
In many ways, he was reaping what he had sown. Also, Abraham could have told himself that God had promised to bless the whole world through him. So why should he foolishly risk his life going against one of the strongest armies in the ancient world to try and save Lot? Lot wasn't the one that all the world would be blessed through. It seems like this was part of the selfish and fear-driven thought process that made Abraham act like such a coward in Egypt. It seems like part of why he hid behind his wife is thinking, well, the promises were made to me. Well, Abraham does not act that way now. Verse 14 shows his decisive response. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. What it sounds like is as soon as Abram hears the news, it seems like he immediately sprung into action. And this verse, verse 14, it reveals to us that Abram was a great man in multiple ways. First, he was very wealthy and very influential, which is clear from the fact that his 318 trained men had been born in his household. If you're taking notes, you can underline that. This is not a group of men that he hired. It's not a security force or it's not, you know, not some trained guerrillas, guerrilla warriors. No, this is, this is people born to servants in his household, ones that, that had been raised underneath his leadership. When you factor in the female servants and other children too young to fight, Abram had a massive household now, probably over 500 people, even though he himself didn't have any children. Abram's great heart is also revealed in his impressive loyalty and courage. Even though he and Lot had parted ways, and even though Lot had chosen the better part of the land, Abram remained loyal in his love for his nephew. He left the comfort and safety of his established home, and he took off with his small, self-taught band of warriors, his 318 men, plus, we'll learn later, some men from the Amorites who he had a treaty with him. So this relatively small group They set out after this four-king army that had just conquered the whole region and crushed any opposition. What Moses is doing, the way he sets this up, is to make it seem like this is a suicide mission with impossible odds. It's kind of like David versus Goliath before David or Goliath were even born. It's like this is, it's it's not supposed to work out. I was thinking this week as I was preparing about how many people, if you've grown up in the church like me, You think about Abraham in terms of Father Abraham, right? Had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You've probably heard that before. We think of Father Abraham, the father of faith. But most people don't think about Abraham, the fighter. General Abraham. But that's what we see in this section. Despite the odds against him, Abraham went, not chasing power and wealth like Kedoloamor or the five kings of the Dead Sea. He went out motivated by faith and love. You see, Abraham must have truly believed the promise of God, that he would become the father of many nations, and that even if he was defeated, somehow God would deliver him and fulfill his promise. At the same time, Abraham must have also genuinely loved Lot, to risk his life, to risk the life of of his men, to rescue his nephew's family. We should contrast that here with, with Abraham boldly tracking down this massive army of four kings, Abraham in the situation with Lot here versus Abram in Egypt. Abram in Egypt who who fearfully again hid behind his wife because he was afraid of one king. He was afraid of the king of Egypt. Now he's chasing after four kings. What makes for that difference? 
that difference, that contrast is the difference that faith in God and his promises makes in the lives of God's people. 2 Peter 1, 4 tells us that God's promises, it's through his great and precious promises that we participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. God's promises are, are how we tap into the resources of God as believers. You know, a question for you to ask yourself is, when is the last time you made a decision consciously based off one of the promises of God? Praying through the promises of God to, to motivate your decision if we aren't regularly meditating on and making our choices based on God's promises, we're forfeiting one of the primary means that God has given us to strengthen our faith. Now, switching back to the story, Abraham had to journey around 150 miles from the south to what would become the furthest, mo furthest most point in the land of Israel, the land that God promised to give him. So he finally caught up with, with the four kings near the city of Dan. Now the question is, what's he going to do? It's kind of like if you chase a tiger, you better have a good plan for what you're going to do if you ever actually catch him. He's, he's caught up to these four kings. So what's his plan with this little band of men? Well, it's actually quite brilliant. And verse 15 explains that he divided his men into, into different smaller groups of so different battle units, and they attacked by surprise at night. Now, the larger army was completely unaware because as far as they knew, all the armies in the area had been subdued. The historian Josephus, the Jewish historian, he adds some extra details by telling us that the kings and their men were drunk and asleep after celebrating their victory. And so under the cover of, nightness, or under the cover of darkness, with their stealth attack, Abraham's tiny band of 318 men, plus whatever Amorites were there, they completely defeated the unprepared four-king army and chased them all the way out of the promised land. They chased them all the way up to the city of Damascus. And so Abraham's rescue mission was an unqualified success. And he not only defeated the seemingly undefeatable super army, he also recaptured all of the plunder that they had taken in their invasion, most importantly, according to verse 16, Lot and his family. The adrenaline from that battle must have spilled over into an intense celebration as Abraham and his band of warriors made the joyful journey back home with hundreds and perhaps thousands of men and women who, like Lot, had been taken away as captives. And I want to show you a, a photo here to try and help us just think through what the mood must have been like. This is when Operation Thunderbolt returned back to Israel. So thousands of Israeli people came, and they came to celebrate the soldiers as heroes, and they came to welcome the hostages back home. I think that joy, that excitement, that must have been similar to what the, those rescued by Abraham experienced as they freely returned to their homes instead of heading off to a lifetime of slavery. They were celebrating because the, the rescue had been a success. And the same was true of Abraham's mission. Now, it's interesting to me that the author, he doesn't take any time to talk about the celebration it's interesting. So he moves on, and it's clear he wants us to see how great Abraham has become through this battle. But the main point of chapter 14, as we'll see more clearly, is that it's not to show how great Abraham is. It's actually to point to someone even greater and more important than Abraham. Now, if you want to know who that is, you're going to have to come back next week. There's another individual in Genesis 14 who's given a more prominent place than Abraham. 
So if you want to find out about that intriguing figure, you're going to have to come back for the message next week. But what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to look at two observations from this passage. After we've walked through it, tried to understand it, I want to look at two observations from it for you to consider. First, faith does not look the same in every situation. Faith does not manifest the same way in every situation. One commentator helped me to to see this when he compared the three different threats to the promise that I mentioned earlier after Abraham's call. In the famine, Abram, he acted hastily and his trip to Egypt was a complete disaster. So he was proactive, he took matters into his own hands and it, it did not go well. In the second threat brought on by family conflict with Lot, Abraham, in many ways, he was passive. He, he didn't try and tackle the situation and, and kind of decisively decide what to do. He, he graciously let Lot decide. And things went much better. In the third threat then, when Lot is taken captive, you could easily imagine Abraham rationalizing that, you know, things went bad when I took action and went to Egypt. And so, therefore, I should just remain passive here. I should just let the situation play itself out. The life of faith, though, is not always black and white. See, there are, there are times when God wants you to, to step out and do something you don't feel like doing. And there are other times when trusting God means going against everything in you and waiting on God instead of acting. And there are times when it's actually tricky to discern, what, what does God want me to do? Which, which of those two options is, is right in this situation? Now, if you're like me, you probably wish it was more black and white. You think about all the choices in life that have many, many permissible options and choices like what, what should you do with your time tonight or, or, or what relationships should you prioritize in your sphere of influence? How much money to invest in your, in your hobbies? There's so many questions that don't have one right answer. And I think if, if you're like me, often I wish there was a, just a formula, like a faith formula where I could figure out exactly what God wants me to do exactly how God wants me to do it. Like, just, just tell me. I, wanted, I just want to know I'm doing the right thing. Now, what I want you to understand is that tension, that's actually a feature, not a bug of the life of faith. That's by design. See, God, he doesn't want us to be robots. He's not interested in us merely just doing the right thing, just, just saying the right thing. Now, of course, God cares about what we do, Of course, he cares about what we say, but the more fundamental question of the life of faith is why do we do what we do? Why do you do what you do? Hebrews 11, 6. Now, without faith, it's impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who keep all the rules. Are Iowa nice all the time? (laughs) Never say anything foolish. Well, you're looking at the verse. That's obviously not what it says. He rewards those who earnestly seek him, who seek God. The life of faith is inherently relational. And while God has given us general commands and principles that speak into every area of our lives, he wants us to learn to seek him and depend on him for direction. And just this week, I experienced that in a fresh way. There's a, uh, a couple of ministry opportunities that my wife and I had. And they both seem pretty important but there's kind of an overlap. They influenced each other. And it, it, as we worked through it, it seemed like what made the most sense, like what we wanted to do, what seemed like best, what seemed like it would be best, we couldn't do both at the same time. And that there'd be some challenges if we didn't. And I, I remember I was talking to my wife in the morning and I was kind of frustrated 
And it's like, it feels like, it feels like a lose-lose situation here. It feels like there's not what I feel like God wants us to do or what would be best. I don't think there's a way to do it. And so I realized as I was talking to her that I'd been stressing on this for a while and I was, like, and I was convicted that I haven't prayed about it yet. And so I was like, all right, time out. Let's just pray. And I prayed and said, God, we just want to do what you want us to do. I'm not sure what that is. This is kind of confusing to me and frustrating to me, but we just want to do what you want us to do. Just, just please make that clear. Now, while we'd been talking, I realized that I'd made some assumptions about one of the situations. I was like, I, need, I should clarify that to make sure I've got my facts straight. And so I called a friend to just get some, some counsel and then to just make sure I was understanding the situation. And when I did, I realized that I'd made some assumptions that were off. And it was like the Red Sea parted. It was like, oh, we can do, exact, we can do exactly what we wanted to do. This is, gonna, this is actually going to work out just fine. And this was just minutes after we prayed. Now, I don't say that because God's always going to answer your prayer a couple of minutes later. No, that doesn't always happen to me. We see in Genesis, Abraham, he had to, to wait 25 years for his son to be born, for that promise to be fulfilled. Some, some promises of God we don't, we don't realize fully until heaven. The reason I share that with you is because I hope you understand, I hope you believe that if you want God, if you are seeking God, God promises to show you his will. God wants to lead you far more than you want to be led. James 1.5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. A question to consider before moving on is, are you becoming more daily dependent on God? Are you becoming more consistently, day by day, dependent on God in your Christian life? For example, in the past year, have you become more aware of your need for God to direct you? and empower you, to give you the, the grace to live out the Christian life, to change you on the inside? Are you more aware of that or are you more often an autopilot or self-reliant as a Christian? See, the, the way that we mature spiritually, it's actually the exact opposite of the way kids mature physically. See, little babies, if you don't feed them, if you're not watching them all the time, they're, they're gonna die. Like, they, they, can't, they can't take care of themselves. It doesn't take long. You have to do everything for them. But by, the, but by the time they're 18, hopefully they don't need you like that. Like that's a parenting failure. Hopefully at 18, they're in a, a place where they can now take care of themselves, provide for themselves. When, you, when it comes to the spiritual maturity and the spiritual growth that God wants us to do, as we become more mature, God wants us to become more and more reliant on him, more and more dependent on him over time. And so we see in this passage that faith, it does not look the same in every situation. The second observation to point out is that Abraham foreshadows Christ's ultimate rescue mission. Abram's rescue, it reminds us of the greatest rescue mission. Commentator Kent Hughes, he put it this way, as Abram was to Lot, so Christ is to us. As Abram was to Lot, so Christ is to us. Humanity and all of us as individuals We've chosen the passing pleasure of sin over the promises of God. And we, we haven't rebelled against God just once in our lives. We rebel against God every day throughout our entire lives. The Bible says that we're by nature slaves to sin. We're under the control of, of one far more cruel and powerful than King Keterleamor. Satan is described as the, the ruler of this world. And as we live for ourselves, if you just live the way you feel like, independent of God, you follow his rebellious path towards hell. 
Thankfully, Christ did not wait passively in heaven for us to make ourselves worthy of his aid. We can never do that. Instead, he initiated a rescue mission that was even more costly than Abram's. Abraham left the, the comfort of his own home and he risked his life in a courageous battle to save his nephew. Jesus left the perfection of heaven and he didn't just risk his life. He came knowing that he was going to die. He came knowing that he was going to lay down his life for us on the cross to save sinners and make them his sons and daughters. It wasn't for someone who was already in his family. It's for those rebelling against him. Romans 5.8 jumps to mind. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The context of this verse in Romans 5, Paul's asking, who would die for someone else? Who would, would you die for a righteous person? He says, maybe. Someone might die for someone they really care about, someone who's really good. But would you die for a sinner? Would you die for someone who's been evil towards you? He says, no. No, no one would do that. But God demonstrates his own love, his unique love, in that while we were yet sinners, while we were rebelling against him, Christ died for us. Luke 19, 10 Jesus said, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. That's why Jesus came. It was the ultimate rescue mission. The cross is the ultimate rescue mission for humanity. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, similarly says, he, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, talking about Christ, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christianity is not about trying to be good enough to save yourself. It's about realizing you are so bad that your only hope of salvation is to humble yourself and admit you need to be rescued. You need to be rescued. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ died. If you've never realized that before, God commands you to repent and believe, of the work, believe in the work of Christ on the cross in your place to save you from your sins and to bring you into a life-changing relationship with him. If you have trusted in Christ, a question for you to think about is when was the last time you contemplated that you'd been rescued? When's the last time you thought about how Christ rescued you? I want to show a, a picture here again to, to remind you of the celebration of when they came back from Operation Thunderbolt. Those captives who were, who were taken prisoner in 1976, they still share their story of rescue 40 years later. They, they still are, are talking about that, sharing the, the uh, situation, sharing the account with others because they were heading to death. They were looking death in the face and these men came and saved them, rescued them. How much more should we as Christians celebrate that Christ has eternally rescued us? and brought us into his own kingdom and family. If, if you're a Christian, the more and more we understand Christ's rescue of us, the more and more joy we'll have, like the joy of those people there celebrating the rescue success. And the more and more we'll have a desire for other people to experience that rescue of Christ as well. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you initiated salvation. You initiated the rescue for us. 
God, we don't deserve that. We can never deserve that. And if there's anyone here who has not understood that, I pray, God, that you would draw them to yourself now. Help them to see their need for a Savior. God, for those of us who have have experienced your grace, tasted your grace, I pray, God, that we would be refreshed. I pray that we'd be reminded, Lord, that we don't earn your love, that we we don't earn your affection. But we thank you, God, that that you love us and have loved us even when we were in when we were rebelling against you. Thank you, you initiated our, our salvation. Lord, help us to be growingly thankful. I pray we'd have a greater joy in our souls as we remember that. And God, I, I pray that you would uh, even use that as, as fuel to, to want to walk with you, to depend on you more consistently day in and day out for direction and for the capacity to, to love others and to care about others the way that you've cared for us. We thank you for this time and we commit all these things to you in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue now with the